Hi, I'm your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to My Weirdest Experience Podcast. This is the podcast of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. It's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hey, welcome to the show. I have Terry Tucker here today. He is the author of Sustainable Excellence. We were just chit-chatting before I hit record, and he has a great story about winning a scholarship to a military college. And I want to hear this story because I can relate to it. We'll get into that later, but welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Tina. I'm looking forward to talking to you. (laughs) And he said, nobody talks to him like in his head. So he's not one of those people. (laughs) Count yourself lucky. So why don't you walk us into what happened and, you know, tell us about this college that you ended up attending. So I, uh, you can't tell this from, from my voice or from looking at me, but, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and uh, had played basketball my entire life and got a scholarship to play division one, NCAA division one basketball at the Citadel down in Charleston, South Carolina. And it was a military school. And I knew it was a military school. And and when I went to college, it was also an all-male military school. It had not gone uh, co-ed as of that point in time. And so I, you know, I had had three knee surgeries in high school. I'd overcome all of that to be able to get back on the court and to get a scholarship to play in college. But when I got down there, I think part of it also was a, um, you know, I, I was, I was missing my family, you know, and I, I was from Chicago. So I, you know, I was like a thousand miles away, mom and dad, and my brothers dropped me off and they go back home. And here I am, you know, they shaved my head. I'm marching around. I'm like, no, I came here to play basketball. You know, notice I didn't say I came here to get an education. I, I came here to play basketball. And so I was going to quit and, and I'd never quit anything in my life ever. And I am walking, literally walking over to the field house to tell the coaches that I'm going to, to quit, that I'm going to give up this full four-year scholarship, uh, that I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And so before I did that, I walked over to Mark Clark Hall, which was the student union, so to speak. And I... I wanted to see if I got any mail. And I had a seven page handwritten letter from my father. And I took that letter and I literally went up into the nosebleed section of the field house. I was probably 50 feet away from the coaches who I was initially going to tell that I was leaving. And I started reading this letter from my dad. And my dad had never written me a letter at all, ever. And so it basically talked about how proud he was of me and how you know, I'd overcome these knee surgeries and how much he loved me and that he knew I could be successful. And then he kind of hit me with, 
you realize that you've called home, <coughs> excuse me, seven times since you've been down there. And not one time have you asked how anybody is doing back home. You are totally in your head. This is totally about you. And if you would get out of your head and realize that you have this great opportunity here, I think you can be successful at doing that. So here I am. I, you know, I mean, I always think back, what if that letter had been mailed a day later? You know, would I, how much of my life would have been different than it is now because I didn't quit, because I ended up finishing at the Citadel and getting that education? What if, what if I'd quit? What if I'd gone home and just gotten a job? How different would my life have been? So I really kind of, I, I look at that letter as sort of divine intervention, like, you know, that kind of God was like, all right, you have two choices now. You can stay here, you know, get through this tough four-year environment, get your degree, or you can quit and you can go home and you can figure out what your life is going to be like that. It's, it's your choice. You have two choices, but nobody's going to make this choice for you. So how did staying at that college change our life? I, th I think certainly it, it matured me. It, it, it you know, matured me physically. It, it, it matured me emotionally. Uh, you know, I, I'd never been away from home. Uh, I mean, I'd been to, to basketball camps for, you know, a week in the summer and things like that. But for all appreciable purposes, I'd never, I'd never been away from home. And so I, I was at a, you know, in a situation where I, I need to figure it out. And I, I needed to, you know, nobody was going to tell me, I, I mean, the Citadel being military, they, they kind of did tell you, you know, when to do certain <laughs> things. Yeah. But in a, in a lot of ways, it was, you know, I, I've got a choice to, I can, you know, go out and hang out with my friends, or I can study for this test that's coming up on Monday. It's your choice. So I, I really think that being away from my family and, and, and everything, my support says I had no support system. So that was another thing that, that I had to figure out who was going to be here to support me. And I was very lucky to have kind of caught on with a family of a professor in the business department. And they would have me over, you know, to eat and, and, you know, for a meal. And a lot of times it was, I needed tutoring. So it was like, well, come over for dinner. And after dinner, you know, the professor would tutor me on certain subjects and that. So it, it was a great experience. I'm glad I did it. I, I am so glad I didn't quit because I really think in a lot of ways it made me the person I am today. Yeah, that's interesting because I was sharing a story with Terry um, before we started recording about how I went to a boarding high school on scholarship. And of course, I was the very first person to go to boarding school. I'm the only person to go to boarding school in my family. And yeah, I think it was sophomore year chemistry. My chemistry teacher noticed I looked unhappy, which I, I think I looked miserable for four years, to be honest. <laughs> and I'm from New York City, so I had no filter and everybody could read everything on my face. <laughs> so he, and he said, well, you made a decision and every decision has consequences. So even if you made the decision and didn't know what all the consequences would be, you probably still had an idea, you know? And now that you're here, are you gonna decide to keep 
with your decision or are you going to change your decision? You know, and I was halfway through high school already. So I decided to stay. I decided to be like, F you, everybody. I'm going to stay for another two years. And then I kind of switched my my approach. I just decided, you know, um, I was really into environmental issues and I still am. So I started the first high school club for environmental the environmental club. And then I started doing other stuff. And then guess what? I started earning respect for my fellow classmates. <laughs> but by then I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just doing my own thing. So, yeah. But I, it sounds like you were homesick. It was a oh, big I, part I, of I, it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I had a girlfriend that I, I dated through, you know, uh, three years of high school and that and and you know I, I was in love and we were going to get married and all that kind of <laughs> stuff so I missed her and and I had a very close family I, I mean my I was very close to my mom and dad and, and my brothers and that and, and you know I had a good friends base you know you go from kind of being in high school you know big man on campus I was captain of the basketball team I was on student council you know during basketball season I was in the papers in Chicago you know almost every week and you go from being sort of big man on campus to here I am this nobody freshman from, you know, the North who's now down here in Charleston, South Carolina at a military college. And I, I couldn't see the forest through the trees in, in a lot of ways. And it, it definitely, I, you know, it, it was hard. It was not easy. I mean, I, I graduated, but I, I was telling my daughter the other day, I barely <laughs> graduated. I mean, I, I was not a stellar student. It was very hard to, you know, to maintain your your academics and to play basketball where, you know, you're you're traveling and you're not in class. And I was definitely a student that uh, I needed to be in class. I needed to hear the lectures. I needed to see the presentations. I, I it wasn't like, well, just read the book and you'll get it. That that was very hard for me. I, I needed to be in class. So it was even, it was even harder to keep up my academics. And it was a constant, you know, I, you know, geez, how am I going to do this and stuff? And uh, my wife and I have a daughter who actually played basketball at the Air Force Academy and is a graduate of the Air Force Academy. And when they would go on road trips, they would take tutors with them that would, would help them. And there would be a certain time set aside to study and that wasn't the case at the citadel it was you got to figure it out bring your books with you study in the hotel when we have downtime and stuff so oh i was absolutely homesick yeah yeah it's, it's sink or swim <laughs> yeah yeah it, it really was and you know and sometimes you know i mean a lot of people and you and i both know these people you know they just put their toe in the water and and sometimes life requires you to just jump in and like you say yeah. sink or yeah. swim yeah, see, I think my mentality in high school was I didn't want to quit anything. And um, I don't think that's healthy either. You know, like I think your happiness is worth a lot. And I don't think I put a lot of worth into my happiness at the time. Um, but and I was telling him, I was like, maybe I should have not stayed there. <laughs> But I'm the kind of person like I can look at 
what would have happened if I stayed in New York City as a high school student? And I think I would have gotten into a lot of things that may not have been good for me. And, and, and ironically, boarding school kept me out of that stuff because I wasn't part of the party group, you know? So I wasn't doing any of that stuff. Plus it was so strict. I mean, your whole day is scheduled from the moment you wake up till you go to sleep. You know what I'm talking about? You're nodding your head. Oh, I do. <laughs> I, I mean, were, were you the kind of person? I mean, there are certainly people that benefit from that kind of a structured environment. Were, were you one of those people that needed that or did you not need that? I, I am not the kind of person that needs that. I don't like too much structure, um, but I'm, I was obedient enough when I was younger to conform to it and do well in school. But I can relate to the academics too, because even though I was a smart kid, I didn't go to country day school my entire life. So even while, as a freshman, I noticed that my classmates were way ahead of me in terms of just writing their writing ability, just everything. Sports, I never played sports. And these, some of these kids are playing soccer since they could kick a ball at three. It was a totally different culture and, and mentality. And it was like, I felt like I was always trying to catch up to everybody else academically, but I was also really hard on myself. So do you think that, that being in an environment where you know, people were maybe physically more mature and, and academically, you know, farther ahead of you. I, I mean, do you think that that caused you to, um, to, to, you know, not to kind of, well, I'll just sit back and I don't really care, but, but you kind of, I guess, up your game, you know, to kind of make you, well, you know what, I'm here academically, I need to be here. So I, I'm going to stretch now, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to push myself to, maybe do things that are uncomfortable, but will help me be a better student. Do you think you were in that kind of role? Um, I think that getting A's was easy when I was younger and it wasn't anymore. And I really had to work hard for it, but it paid off in college. Cause I'll tell you why. When I went to college, it was piece of cake. Couldn't believe how easy it was. It took writing workshops. I was getting A's on all my essays and if not, I was arguing with the teacher about it, <clears throat> but I had to really work for A minus in an English lit class in my high school. I mean, those weren't just going to be given to you. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it paid off in, in that way, but it was it was really hard. I mean, and intimidating. But do you do you feel because I've always felt that. You know, I'll give you an example. When I when I was younger, uh, I I went to a basketball camp, and and because I was physically, you know, I was taller and things like that, I was given the option. I I could I could uh, work every day with the kids that were my age, or I could work every day with the older kids because I was physically more along their line. So I chose to work with, with the older kids. But at the end of the camp, there was different contests. And one of them was a, a free throw shooting contest. And again, I was given a choice. 
do you want to shoot against the, the kids in your age group or do you want to uh, shoot against the older kids? And I thought, well, you know, I, I want to win the competition, so I'm going to shoot against the younger kids. Well, I, I didn't. I finished second instead of uh, and, and some other younger kid beat me out. And I remember a coach came over to me and he said, you know, I understand why you chose to shoot against the younger kids. You know, you wanted to win. But he said, I think that if you would have shot against the older kids, you probably would have won that contest because you would have had to have upped your game. You would have had, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm shooting against the younger kids. It's no big deal. But if you're shooting against it, the competition's better. You kind of, I've always found that the competition's better you have to play better and you, you, you bring a better, you know, you, like I always say, you up your game when you're playing against people that are better than you. Yeah, I think that's true. And if, if, as a smart kid, I don't think it helps them to not be challenged or for things to come easy to them. I think it's important for them to be challenged. I think they did a better job of that now with kids than they did when we were kids. You know, I mean, now in high school, my daughter's in high school, she's taking honors and AP courses at freshman year. That was not even heard of when I was in high school. No, me neither. I mean, there were there were no honors classes. There were there, there were no AP classes. It was yeah. just, you know, you, you take biology and, you know, if, if you're and I think especially for smarter kids, I, I was not one of those smarter kids. But I, I think for for smarter kids, it was they were bored you know, and it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is easy for me. For me, it was like, okay, I, I this is hard and, and I'm having to stretch. But for, for the really smart kids, you wish they would have had an AP or an honors level, that, you know, classes to take because they didn't, they were taking the same thing that, you know, kind of a dummy like me was taking. Yeah, I took AP history and I, I thought it was really hard. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of memorization. There was a lot of reading. It was like, insane yeah so but on the other hand you know colleges look at your gpa so if you're in a really tough school like mine my gpa wasn't going to be as stellar as if i went to another high school in the city somewhere so how did that affect me like with the colleges that i would be able to look at or get into yeah. And I, you know, it's funny because we found that we, we sent our daughter to, you know, sort of the, the as you mentioned earlier, the, the country day schools and, you know, she did, she did very, very well. But I, I remember uh, she actually finished her senior year at, at a different high school when we moved, but the first three years, there were so many parents that were like, you know, if uh, we were living in Texas if my kid doesn't get into the university of Texas at Austin, then they're like a failure. And it's like, I, I and I've always, my wife went to a, a small liberal, liberal arts college way up in almost the Canadian border in Minnesota called Bemidji state. And she is so much more successful than these kids that, you know, that, that went to all the, you know, I went to the university of Chicago or I went to NYU or I went to, you know, those, and it's it's not where you go, I don't think. It's what you put into it and what you get out of it. Right. And nobody, after a while, once you get your first job out of college, no one's going to ask you where you went to college. No one's going to ask you your GPA. No one cares, you know, at that point. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but it, it was just funny to watch all these parents think, oh, my God, if my kid doesn't get into the University of Texas at Austin, then then they're a failure for life. And it's like, no, they're 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 not a failure at all. And, you know, unless they decide that they, they're going to be a failure. Right. So you could go to a college and really work hard and learn a lot. Or you could go to a college and slack off and and, you know, party and get the least out of it. Right. So it's what you put into it for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So your book, Sustainable Excellence, what is that about? So Sustainable Excellence is a is really a book that was kind of born out of two conversations that I had. I, uh, I, I first one was with a former basketball player that I had coached when we lived in Texas and she had moved to Colorado with her fiance and my wife and I had had dinner with them one night. And I remember saying to her, I said, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close to us and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while and she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason that you were put on this earth and then living that purpose, living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then the second one was with a young man in college who kind of reached out to me on LinkedIn and he said, you know, what are the things I need to learn to not just be successful in my job or in business, but in life? And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not, not that those aren't important. They are. They're incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could give him something that maybe went, went deeper, kind of went into his soul, so to speak. And so I thought about it for a while and I wrote down some notes and eventually I came up with these 10 principles and I sent them to him. And then I sort of sat back and I was like, well, I've got a life story that fits under this principle, or I know somebody's life who emulates that principle. And so 2020 was kind of a difficult year for me. I had my left leg amputated in April of 2020 because of, of cancer and, and then I started chemotherapy in June of 2020 for the tumors that I have in my lungs. So during that three-month period, I literally sat down at the computer and I started to build stories underneath these principles. And literally, that's how Sustainable Excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life uh, came to be. And I remember when, when the book was published, I was like, you know, I got to sell books. I got to sell books. I got to sell books. And I had a best-selling author over in the United Kingdom who I'd connected with on LinkedIn. He kind of pulled me aside and he's like, Terry, you're, you're missing the point. Your job is not to sell books. Your job is to help people. If you help people, your books will sell themselves. And, and I was so glad that he, he said that to me. I, I had never published a book before. I, I really didn't know what I was doing. And, and that, but it, it was so true. It, it, you know, it's like I was so caught up in getting people to buy the book that I missed the whole reason that I wrote the book, which was to help people. So, you know, it, it was it was kind of, a, again, another learning experience for me on, on something I knew absolutely nothing, nothing about. And, and I was really kind of glad that he reached out and sort of, you know, slapped me in the face and said, no, nah, you're missing the point look at the big picture. Don't look at the small part. Yeah. So what are the 10 principles? 
I'm not going to give them all to you, but I'll give a few. Of okay, you give me a few. <laughs> so the one I like the most, and and it it is it's always funny for me when people read the book because the principle, you know, they're they're late, they're numbered one through ten, but you know, seven is not any more important than one or anything like that. So they're not in in any order. But it, I I just love it because there's always one principle that whoever reads the book gravitates to it's like this is the one for me or or that's the one for me and the one that that really gravitates with me and it i think it does is because i did this so much in my life is this and and this is this is the title of the chapter and uh, the principle is most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds and, and I have done that. I've done that so many times. And I think we all have. It's like, you know, I, I really want to do that. Um, that kind of scares me. I, I, don't, I don't think I want to do that. Or if I do that, what, what if I fail? What are people going to say about me? Who cares what people are going to say about you? You know, I, I always tell, especially young people, that if, if you have something in your heart, something in your soul that you that you want to do that you feel is your passion but it scares you go ahead and do it because at the end of your life the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things that you did they're going to be the things that you didn't do and by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them yeah and and science says that because when we're in a fear state our prefrontal cortex shuts down and that's the part of our brain that thinks rationally. So you're, when you're in fight and flight mode, you're not really thinking. You're right. Uh, Right. You're not, there's no critical thinking there. It's do I run or do I fight? (laughs) How do I survive this ordeal? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to, you know, the story we talked about earlier about my, my experience in college, you know, do I stay? Yeah. You know, and, and tough this out or yeah. do I quit, you know, and cut and run? Yeah, me too. And we yeah, stay. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's my favorite there. I, I have one, uh, one of my jobs uh, when I was a police officer was I was a hostage negotiator uh, on the SWAT team. So uh, I, I talk about the importance of listening as, as one of the principles and not listening to reply but listening to understand. And, and I always, when I was a policeman, you know, 99% of, of my interactions with people were face-to-face. You know, I, there was a traffic stop and I was talking to somebody in a car or I had a radio run to a, a domestic violence situation in a home and, you know, the husband and wife were there. And, and so it's all face-to-face. Well, when we were negotiating, the person wasn't with us. You know, they could be a block away you know, barricaded in a house, or, you know, I could be talking to somebody through an apartment door or something like that. So the the visual clues that I would pick up on as a police officer, you know, I may be talking to you and, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of looking around and I may see that and say, oh, you know, maybe she's going to run or maybe she's looking at a way, finding a route to escape. Well, I could do something about that, you know, depending on why I was there. I could I could handcuff you, I could sit you down, I could put you in the back of the car, whatever, to stop that. But as negotiators, we had to figure out what was going on based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And and a lot of that was 
trial and error. You know, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and see if this is why we're talking. And a lot of times the person would be like, no, you idiot. That's not what I mean at all. You know, so we spent two hours talking about this over here when the real problem was this over here that we haven't even discussed yet. So it was a lot, it, it taught me a lot about the importance of listening to understand as opposed to listening to reply. And, and I really think, especially today, that if we as a society, as, as a country, as a world, spent more time listening to each other to understand where we're coming from, as opposed to, you know, hurry up, Tina, say what you're going to say, because I'm going to get my two cents in here, <laughs> that we'd be a whole lot better off. Yeah, you know when it's important to listen is when someone you care about is telling you something that you disagree with. That's when you listen, because it's not necessarily needed for you to say, I disagree with that, although you can do that respectfully, too. I've done that, too, where I'm like, yeah, I don't really agree with that, but let's move on to something else or this, <laughs> But, but you know, that I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that goes to, I want to I listen to understand where you're coming from. You're right. We may not agree with each other, but I want to understand why you feel that way or yeah. what's led you to, to make this decision. And that's fine. We may not agree and that's okay. We don't have to agree, but right. at least now I have an appreciation for why you made that decision or where you're coming from. Exactly. And you can still maintain that friendship. Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, it, it's, I mean, my, my our, our goddaughter uh, is a, is a professor and, and, and is of a, in a small liberal arts college in Ohio is, is a Reiki instructor is a Buddhist monk. I mean, she has so many views that are totally different than my wife and I yet, you know, we care enough about her. We love her enough that we wanted her to be the goddaughter to our only child. Yeah. And I think also it's nice. It's, it's nice as also a Reiki master. If, if family and friends, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to understand, you know, be an expert, but ask that person about it, you know, just to show your interest. Because sure. <laughs> I have family members that have never asked me about it. And I'm like, really? aren't you at least a little curious? Because I'm a very curious person. So if I meet someone that, you know, they do something really different, I'll look it up, you know, I'll look into it, because I just like to learn and meet new people. I like to learn what they do. But I just don't understand, you know, why a family member knows I've been doing this, you know, I've had this business for seven years, and they never asked me about yeah, it. Uh, and again, you know, I'm like you, I, I want to understand, I, I may not agree with you. But you know what, I want to understand what, what's that about? Tell me more about that. And my daughter always sort of, I, I don't know if criticism is the right word. But you know, she's like, you talk to everybody. I'm like, I do. I, I like people. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I want to understand about you. I, I, you know, people ask me, like, what kind of books do you like? I like biographies and autobiographies, because I like to understand what makes people tick. Why did yeah. you make that decision? You know, why, why did you do, you know, why'd you go left instead of right and, and things like that. And, and that's, you know, like I said, may not agree with you, but I, but I like to understand it because that, that gives me more information that I can use 
to help me grow and be a better person. Right, right. And along with the story about their books and wanting to sell books, like a lot of podcast guests, they, you know, they have memberships and merchandise and everything. And I started this because I've always wanted I always wanted to meet new people and interview them. I just didn't know what the venture, what that would look like. Well, I do this because I enjoy it. And there is a energetic benefit to this. I mean, I'm not making money, although I kind of think I am, because when I started my podcast, I started getting a lot more clients. But they weren't listening to my podcast. It was that energy that it was putting out there. And that energy is coming back to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all, we all have that energy and, and, you know, some people display it, you know, more openly and some people are very closed and, and as you know, and, you know, closed off and, and, and don't understand, but, but we all, we all have that energy, you know, we, we all have that, you know, I, I've heard people talk about, you know, the sort of that vibration. We're all, everything's vibrating at a certain level. And, and mm-hmm. that's like, you know, okay, great. You know, I, this is, this is who I am. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to, you know, I, I, like I said to my daughter, I'm like, I just like people. I, I like talking to them. And, you know, when I was in my twenties, did I have the maturity to do that? Maybe not, but you know, now that I'm in my sixties and certainly being a police officer, you know, I, I, I get, questions sometimes for young people who not not very often anymore but i used you know what what would you recommend that i do to to be i want to go into law enforcement what would you recommend and i always tell them that all these devices and gizmos that put those down go out on the street and talk to the homeless guy and yeah. go up to the penthouse and talk to that guy because yeah. if you want to be successful in law enforcement you're going to have to learn to talk to people and you're also going to have to learn to understand what they're saying, you know, they may not be telling you the whole truth. And, you know, a lot of people lie to you in law enforcement. So you kind of, you know, it helps if you are good at talking with people, because people who lie usually aren't very good at it. And if you ask enough questions, eventually, you'll catch them in the lie. I actually when someone lies to me, I feel it physically. Do you? Yes. (laughs) I feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But one of one of the things as a police officer, I imagine that you have you walk into a lot of stressful, uncomfortable situations and you have to be able to stay calm. Right. You don't know what's going to happen when you talk to that person, when you pull them over, when you go into their home. Right. So you have to have a high tolerance for discomfort and stress and be able to stay calm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, but the sort of the flip side of that is, you know, we're, we're not robots. And, you know, I, I mean, when you when you have to transport two seven year old twins that burned up in a fire to the morgue, you're going to feel that, you yeah. know, the, you, you and, and I mean, let's face it, in law enforcement, there's a, a much higher degree of suicide. There's a much higher degree of, you know, alcohol and, and drug abuse. There's a much higher degree of divorce and, and domestic violence. And I, I mean, you have to have something that grounds you. And, and I, I 
been invited out many times after a shift. Hey, let's let's go out and have a drink. And I'm like, no, I'm going home to my family. You know, my mm-hmm. family was my my ground, my, you know, the thing that was like, okay, this is, this is stable. All the, the garbage, all the crap, all the, the, the hopelessness and helplessness that you see as a police officer that, you know, you can't make a difference. You know, you can't change. I I mean, that was one thing as a negotiator, you know, if you're talking to me, you're probably having the worst day of your life. And, I, I always looked at it like, you know, 90% of the time we got the person out, either they were barricaded or they had a hostage. We got the people out safely. I, I never lost a hostage, but there were several times where the person I was talking to made their decision, not mine. They made the decision to end their life and, and they did. And I never lost any sleep over that. And I don't want your audience to think that I was callous about that. But I think the thing you need to remember is, as I said, you're probably having the worst day of your life talking to me. And the reason that you're having the worst day of your life, the problem that we're dealing with many times was, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the making. And to have me a total stranger even with the great training that I had, even, you know, working with a psychologist and all that kind of stuff to have me come in and, and solve that for you in two hours, three hours, four hours, five, whatever time period it took us just, just wasn't realistic. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you, you can't have a 40 year old problem that you're going to solve in, you know, in two hours that, I mean, if that were the case, it would have been solved a long time ago. Well, that's like what we were saying about consequences of decisions. You know, we're responsible for our own decisions. And there are other people, they're responsible for their decisions. And we can do our very, very best to help them and guide them and advise them. But ultimately, it's in in their hands. I always say it's, this is my journey and that's their journey. Exactly. Exactly. And and I I wanted those people to be successful. I wanted those people to come out because, you know, that was one thing as a policeman. I always kept, you know, in perspective that, yeah, you know, in in a lot of ways, law enforcement's like business, you know, that kind of the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of your business comes from 20% of your customers. Well, 80% of the crime comes from 20% of the criminals. And, And a lot of times, you know, who those people are. But I always remembered that those people also had, no matter how bad they were, no, no matter how addicted they were to, to crack or to meth or to whatever, there was somebody somewhere that loved them. You know, there was a mom or a dad or, you know, a brother or sister or, or you know, a, 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 a spouse or a child or somebody that loved them. And they weren't disposable. You know, they weren't just somebody that society could cast off no matter how much they were cast off. And, and, you know, a lot of them were in in situations where you and I would never want to be, you know, we Mm -hmm. would never wish that on our worst enemy and you're having to deal with them in a law enforcement kind of view. You, you give them opportunities, you give them some hope maybe, but like you say, in the end, it's your decision, how you want your life to go. Yeah. 
Yeah, you made a good point because I didn't really think about this, but this there's probably people that you encountered over and over again. <laughs> you did. I mean, you know, when you ran a beat or an area, you know, night after night, and, and I my partner and I ran, you know, as as police, you know, we were in uniform in a marked car, you know, every night for four years. And you know, and when you get a detective that comes to you and says, Hey, we're looking for a guy that looks like this or you know has this tattoo or has this scar or whatever oh yeah you know that's peanut here's where peanut lives here's where peanut's mother lives here's where peanut's you know baby's mama lives and i mean you if you were good at what you did you knew the criminals you knew where they lived you knew where they hung out you knew who they hung out with so you were you were pretty good as a source of information for a detective who may not know who this person was, but just based on physical description, you kind of had an idea who it was. Yeah. Well, Terry, I wanted to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your stories. And um, his book again is called Sustainable Excellence and you can get that where? You can pretty much get it anywhere. You can get a book online. You can get it through Amazon. You can get it through barnesandnoble.com. You can get it on Apple iBooks. Pretty much anywhere that you can get a book online, you can get sustainable excellence. And how's it doing? Are you selling a lot of books? I am. Actually, I'm, I'm selling quite a few. And as I, you know, as I do podcasts, and, I, and I've probably done 150 different podcasts all around the world, it, it's, it's kind of fun to see people in other countries also ordering the book. So I'm, I'm very happy with the way things are going with it. Wow. You could do this in your sleep then. <laughs> Sometimes I think I could. Yes. <laughs> well, if you love to talk to people, I highly recommend being a podcast host because it's really fun. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, people have suggested that and I, I sort of laugh because I, you know, I'm like, well, I can barely turn my cell phone on in the morning. So I, I wonder how, how would I do with all this technology and that? So I think for right now, I'm, I'm at least comfortable being just a, just a guest for now. Yeah, it's really easy. I mean, I, I don't do a whole lot. Like I know people who edit their episodes, uh -huh. but I don't edit my episodes. I'm just very organized and prepared. There you go. <laughs> That makes you successful in life about 90% of the time. I learned that, that in boarding school. There, there you go. <laughs> right. I learned it in military school. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Terry. I enjoyed having you. Well, thank you, Tina. It's, I, you know, hopefully our conversation today, we're going to make a difference in the lives of some of the members of your audience. And if we do that, it's been a good day. Exactly. I totally agree. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218 or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. 
Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.